Uh, morning. I'm obviously not Pastor David. Uh, I'm Brian. I'm one of the elders here at Hillcrest. Um, and we're going to continue our sermon series through First Peter. Um, for those of you who have not been joining us, we've been going through First Peter uh, for the past several months uh, uh, at blazing speeds, uh, two verses or so every month. Uh, uh, we uh, have been focused on the first chapter where we look at our identity uh, in Christ. Uh, last week we talked about being living stones and how we're chosen and precious through God. And uh, today we are going to go even at a faster pace than what we've been doing. We're going to focus on three verses today. Uh, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Um, um, but before we begin, uh, take some time, if you will, and we'll pray here. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Uh, we just thank you that you have given us uh, your God-breathed words to read uh, and dwell on. As Second Peter or Second Timothy states, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Uh, please open our hearts, Lord. Uh, remove all distractions, and let us hear from your word. Um, I pray that I will not get in the way of your word; that I will not be a distraction. And as always, Lord, let you increase and let us decrease. And we thank and praise you for who you are. In your name, Amen. So today we are studying 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. So if you turn with me in your Bibles, or if you want to look up front and not crane your neck too much, um, this is really hard having this way up there. There we go. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So before we get into these verses, the last few weeks we've been spending a lot of time looking at the immediate context of Peter, and then trying to apply that to our lives. And today we're going to do things a little differently, not just because I'm not David, um, but we're going to look at the historical context of, <clears throat> of these passages to sort of help us find that context of how we apply this to our lives. So uh, if you bear with me, we will take, spend a lot of time uh, out of Peter today, uh, but we'll keep coming back. Uh, and so right away, Peter says, for it stands in Scripture. And what he's saying here is, he's not using the term scriptures, which would imply the whole Old Testament, but he's saying it stands in Scripture. And what he's saying is he's pulling out just a portion of the Old Testament and wants us to focus on that. And so when he says, for it stands in Scripture, he's talking about this larger, this smaller context than just the, old, 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 the whole Old Testament. Um, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So we can't just, we don't want to take this one verse out of Isaiah 28, 16 and, and take it out of context. So the question is, what was going on at this portion of Isaiah that, that Peter is drawing our attention to? And so what's happening here is Isaiah chapter 28 and 29 is a very gloomy part of Isaiah, a very uh, hard chapter to read because God is foreshadowing the destruction of Jerusalem and the wrath that's going to come upon them. And these whole two chapters are really sort of a, 
a very pessimistic, very hard chapter, two chapters to read, except for one verse. There's one shining star in all of this, and that shining star is this verse that Peter quotes. Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. See, God is laying out his current plan for Israel and foreshadowing his future plan in Isaiah. Hope in a Messiah, right? There's destruction coming, but there's hope in a Messiah. If we look further in Isaiah 28, or excuse me, 29, verses 3 through 4, and I will encamp against you all around. I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low for the earth you shall, from the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech will whisper. See, the story of Israel all throughout the Old Testament happens again and again, right? Israel falls away from God. God punishes them. They come back and they do it again and again. But God warned the Jewish people in Isaiah that he punished them, not just for turning away, but specifically for what they have done. What they were doing is they were creating man's laws that were superseding God's laws. See, man's laws were overriding God's laws. Sounds similar to the Pharisees of that time, right, in the first century. Peter is showing the first century Christians that history is repeating itself. And for that matter, today history is repeating itself as we make laws that supersede God's laws. And we read further in chapter 29. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near me with their mouth, And honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. It's a commandment taught by men. See, God is judging Israel for turning away from him. But though their outward appearance, anyone else in Jerusalem would have looked at that and said, yes, they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're going through the motions. But their heart wasn't in it. They were following the motions. But there's no truth in the Jewish leaders. There's no worship. Several years ago, on one of my trips to Haiti, we were flying out of a small city called Jeremy. And the airport, if that's what you want to call it, was just a small building, probably a cinder block building, probably the size of the Titus Room. And we had flown through there multiple times. And the, the runway itself is just a dirt road. There's sometimes pigs and sheep in the way. And they get out of the way when the airplane propellers start. But we'd been there several years, and the, this year there was something different about the airport. There was an x-ray machine and a metal detector there. And the security guards there were, were being a little pushy and, and sort of trying to overt their authority over us. And as we're putting our bags on there, I'm trying to lean over to see what's on the screen, and they're shoving us away. And so my friend and I have a theory. To test this theory, I keep myself one in my pocket, keep my metal sunglasses on, I walk through the metal detector. And sure enough, it doesn't go off. So the, those people were going through the motions. They, were, they knew what security looked like, but there's no security happening there. And it's the same with the Jewish leaders. They were going through the motions. They knew what they were supposed to do, but there was no true worship going on there. 
They were outwardly performing the rituals, but their hearts were not in it. Just like the metal detector x-ray, they were broken. They weren't working. The Jewish leaders' hearts were broken. They weren't worshiping God. And Peter is encouraging his first century Christians with this passage. He's calling attention to this contrast in the context of what's going on in Isaiah to what's going on in the first century. Current leaders of the first century were also trusting in their laws, not in God to save them. The Pharisees, if we read about in the other Gospels, right, they, supersede, they created more laws to supersede God's laws, right? God's law for the Sabbath was a good law, but the Pharisees made it worse. They, right, they, you can't only walk so far on the Sabbath. You can't do this on the Sabbath. You can't do that. And they made God's law now a burden. So much of this Jewish identity in the first century was wrapped around the temple, around these rituals, around the sacrifices. Imagine growing up as a first century Christian, but your whole life you were a Jew and everything centered around the temple. Now you're a Christian and that old life is past. And, and what do you, how do you handle that, that new identity? You may have difficulty finding kind of your way. And I was struggling the last few weeks trying to come up with a good example. And this is the best I can do. So imagine you had a friend, um, for lack of any other name, let's just say this friend's name is David. Um, and your friend grew up their entire life as a Vikings fan. <laughs> Not knowing the sweet taste of, of Super Bowl win, a couple playoff games, you know, they might dance in the end zone weirdly. And your friend sees the light, becomes a Packer fan. Multiple Super Bowl victories, Lambeau Leap, right? So as your friend, now as a Packer fan, sees the truth, sees the right way, and sees the old way of the Vikings, and sees other people struggling, right? It, there's identity crisis there. <laughs> Sorry, David. <laughs> Peter is encouraging the first century Christians, right? They found the way. They found the truth. It's not in the temple. It's not in the rituals. They have an identity in Christ. And their allegiance is a sure foundation. Jesus was chosen and precious. Though Jesus was disavowed by the world, he was chosen by God. See, there's an intentionality there, right? Jesus was chosen by God. God didn't have to choose Jesus. We could have, he could have chosen no one. We'd still be living in our sin. But he chose Jesus. The most important thing in our lives and in this world is Jesus. He provides that firm foundation chosen by God, which leads to joy, right? Joy in Jesus, which is one of our core values here at Hillcrest. And to be honest with you, I'm often convicted of this. Do I act as if Jesus is the most precious thing in my life? We shout for joy when our football team wins, when the Packers score a touchdown. We probably shout for more joy when the Vikings lose. We get a new car and we're so excited and we want to tell everyone about it. Just even this week, I was playing video games with a friend. We won and... Screaming out loud, it's the first time we've won. And, ah! 
come upstairs to go to bed. My wife's like, is everything okay down there? I'm like, yeah, we won. <laughs> right? I'm screaming for joy over a video game. Do I scream for joy over God? If you stop for a second and think, right? We were separate from God. God sent his son to die for us, to take his play, our place. And now we can spend eternity with God. That should bring us so much joy. We should scream it from the rooftops. Jesus is so precious. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now in our present context, right? Stone? Why compare Jesus to a stone? Right? They're kind of worthless. Right? You get a pebble in your foot, sometimes it's a little noxious even. Right? They were digging the foundations of our house and came across multiple boulders and rocks, and even cement from the neighbor's pool that they dumped in there. Right? But as frustrating as it was, it wasn't a big nuisance. Excavators got rid of those things and Pelletary took it away. But in the ancient world, rocks and boulders were such an inconvenience. They didn't have the technology to move them. Roads would sometimes just go around these big boulders because it wasn't worth taking them apart. Right? They were an inconvenience. They were majestic in some people's minds. Right? The Jewish people looked at stones as proper, elegant, and majestic because it reminded them of the temple. The core of their spiritual life. The core of their, their livelihood. The entire structure of their temple, made of stone, all laid on the cornerstone. You see, stonemasons would go through all these stones trying to find that perfect one. The one to start the building off with. If that first stone was misaligned, the whole building would be off. If it was not a straight edge, the wall would be, wouldn't be plumb and it would fall. Just as the stonemasons chose the best stone to become the cornerstone, Jesus was chosen and precious. Behold, I am laying in Zion, laying in Jerusalem, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter is again showing the first century Christians that whoever believes in Jesus, there won't be shame, there won't be disappointment. Though the Jewish temple, which was just a big part of your lives, is not anymore. This new identity is better. There's no shame and no disappointment. You will not be disappointed in Jesus. Now I was in my early 20s. Uh, over the summer, I'd come back home between schooling, and I worked out at a gym, and all the guys I worked out with were about 10 years older than me. And my boss actually owned the gym uh, at the time. And so we had sort of control of the music, not me, the 30-year-old people. And all they listened to was what they went to high school with, right? 80s rock, hair metal band to be exact, right? So for three months, all, every day, five days a week, I heard this 80s hair metal music and I got drilled on who sang what. And at the end of that summer, I started loving that music. Don't judge me. And it reminds me of this scene 
in a movie called Billy Madison. So the premise of this, I'm not advocating we, you watch that, but in this movie, the main character has to go back to school because he failed miserably and went to school for so long. So he had to go back to kindergarten, first grade, all the way through. So finally he gets to go redo high school. And he shows up in this awesome Camaro, 80s hair metal playing, jean jacket on, and I love this scene. <laughs> and partly I love this scene because something similar happened to me. My first day of residency, my intern year, I had to drive to another hospital to go to a clinic with a friend of mine. As we're dry, walking out to the parking lot, my red Pontiac Firebird, we get in the car. There was T-tops too. <laughs> we get in the car, and I turned to Amy, and I said, you want to listen to Def Leppard or Poison? <laughs> she says, Poison, of course, totally thinking I'm joking. And I put Poison in, and she was flabbergasted to actually listen to this music. And she ridiculed me for four years of residency, calling my car a Camaro when it was a Firebird. Right? Something that I cherished over time now became shameful. This happens to so many things in our lives. We have some possession that we're so, so proud of, but over time it loses its luster and we become ashamed of it. That brand new car that now is rusted, speakers don't work, air conditioning doesn't work. That cool computer that's so fast and now it doesn't boot up. Peter is using the same thing. Peter is telling that whoever believes in Jesus won't be shamed. You won't be disappointed. Now what is Peter talking about when he talks about shame? Right? We can look at this passage and say, well, of course, someday there won't be shame. When I get to heaven, there will be no more shame. And that's true. But if we look at that context, if that's how we believe it, we can look at this world and say, you know what, I'm just going to buckle down, grind through this, this is going to be a hard life, but I'm fighting for the prize at the end. No, there's a prize, and there's victory in Jesus at the end. There's so much more in this life. I'm arguing that we should never be ashamed of Jesus in this life. And if we feel shame in Jesus, the problem is us. Right? So when we become ashamed of our possessions, it's because they lose their value or their worth. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He never changes. So if we have any inkling of shame or disappointment, the problem is us. We may value something more than, than Christ. Maybe you value the oppression of others more than the impression Christ has of us. There's really no shame in Jesus in this life or the next. We may change, but God and Christ never changes. You will never be disappointed in Jesus. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. Peter again goes back to the first century Christians and tells them, look, not only will you not be shamed, you won't be disappointed, you'll be honored. Right? So many of those first century Jews lost everything of their former lives. 
They were ostracized by family, kicked out. They were exiles. He's telling them, you won't be shamed. You won't be disappointed. You'll be honored. And then Peter changes gears. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So Peter goes away from Isaiah now, and he takes this passage out of Psalms. Psalms 118.22. Who are these builders that Peter is talking about? He's referring to the Jews. See, they were looking for the Messiah. But they were so focused on the law, their laws, that they missed the point. They focused on the law rather than faith. The stone, Jesus Christ, the Jewish leaders, the builders, the Jewish leaders rejected became the cornerstone. God, the architect, had a plan. The Jewish leaders, the builders rejected it, but yet the cornerstone was still laid down. I'm going to go on a tangent here, but bear with me, please. If we look at Scripture, who else used these terms? The stone that the builders rejected has become this cornerstone. Yes, it's in Psalms 118, but where else do we find this in Scripture? Who else spoke these words? Jesus Christ did. When Jesus came into Jerusalem right before his final weeks, right? He's right that final week before the cross, the triumphal entry, he comes in through Palm Sunday. Mark 11 focuses on this triumphal entry. In verse 9, it states, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were praising Jesus. Many thought he was the Messiah then and there. Jesus went to focus on the spiritual state of Israel. Right? Centered around the temple. First thing he does is he goes to the temple. And what does he see? He sees money changers robbing people coming to worship. He flips over the tables, prevents people from coming and going. And then he says... This parable, the parable of the tenants. In this parable, he talks about a a man who bought a vineyard, put a fence around it, and needed people to take care of it. So he hired some tenants, and the man went to another country. And after a time, he sent his servant to come back and collect some of the fruit. And the tenants beat the servant up and sent him running. So the man sent another Servant. And this one they, they, they beat up and then murdered. In this parable, he sent servant after servant after servant with similar results. Some were beaten, some were murdered. And so this, the man says, Well, if I send my son, they'll respect my son. When the tenants saw the son coming, they said, If we kill the son, the inheritance will be ours. So they killed the son and threw him out of the vineyard. You see, God gave the Jewish people responsibility to take care of the vineyard. But they had been found wanting. They mistreated the prophets that God had sent. And when this man in the parable, representative God, the architect, sent his own son, Jesus Christ, the tenants, the Jewish leaders killed him. And right after this parable, Jesus says this. 
What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, what I find so ironic in this, right? Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. That they were speaking days before. Comes out of Psalms 118. Four verses later, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The same Psalms that they knew forwards and backwards. They missed the point. The Jews of the first century failed to understand that God is building a spiritual temple. They're more instead focused on the physical temple and their rituals and staying in power. They're allowing money changers to rob people instead of worshiping. They entirely missed the point of the temple and now are rejecting the cornerstone standing before them. And another problem we see with Mark in Mark is when Jesus turns over the tables, he says, and I was, he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house should be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. My house should be a house of prayer for all nations. Not Israel, all nations. See, and that's what the Jews missed. You see, they even built a wall around the temple separating the courtyard. So Gentiles could go in the courtyard, but they couldn't go into the temple proper. If they did, they were killed. Jesus is reminding the Jews of the heritage that they had lost. God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that in you all, all families will be blessed. Instead of blessing all nations, the Jews thought it was all about them. The stone that the builders rejected, the Jewish leaders, has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumbled because they disobeyed the word and they were destined to do so. Here Peter's again calling, uh, uh, quoting Isaiah. This passage is found in ver- chapter 8, verse 14. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The chief priests refused Jesus. And the majority of Israel followed their lead. Consequently, Christ became a stone of stumbling. Christ was offensive to them. This new covenant that Jesus spoke of caused them to stumble. He called out their lack of worship. The Jewish leaders were offended. And we see this all around us. Those that are disobedient to God are offended, even at his name. They stumble over his doctrines of purity, over his precepts. The word is a stumbling block for those who rebel against him. The Jewish leaders stumbled at God's, Jesus' appearance and his message. <laughs> He's the son of a carpenter. He's not the son of God. A message of faith versus the law and our works, we're going to earn our way. There's not justification through faith. They stumble because they disobey the word 
as they were destined to. You see, the Jewish leaders were highly privileged. They were especially aware of their unique position and status as being the chosen people of God. Right? We read about in the Old Testament that God chose Israel. And why did he choose Israel? Just because he can. Right? There's nothing special about Israel, but God chose them nonetheless. Just like he chose us. And if they submitted to the teachings of Jesus, they were worried they would lose that special standing before God. And they'd be on the same level as the Gentiles. And that was a hated thought to them. The truth is, they wouldn't have lost anything. They would continue to be what they were chosen to be, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. And Peter uses those same verbiage in verse 5 and verse 9. The first century Christians were a chosen people, a royal priesthood. They wouldn't have lost anything. The Jews stumbled over the word, rejected Jesus, faced judgment and destruction by God. And they'll be split upon him as a rock. Jesus was not the author of their sin, but he will judge their sin. The Jewish leaders disagreed so much with Jesus, they tried to destroy his ministry by killing him, right? The builders rejected the architect's plan, but yet the cornerstone still is there. Despite everything the Jewish leaders did, God's plan cannot be thwarted. And we know this, right? We know God's plan can't be thwarted, right? God's omniscient and knows all. He's omnipresent and he's everywhere. He's omnipotent and he's all-powerful, right? We know these things. And in our head of heads, we know, but in our hearts, we sometimes forget. We worry about tomorrow. We turn on the news and we're astonished by what we see. How did we get here? We strive for, to try, find some level of control. We put our faith in the government, our political party, our laws, just like the Pharisees did. Or we may put faith into our financial portfolio, our 401k. If I have enough wealth, I can weather any storm. Right? If I have enough faith, I can weather any storm. Enough money. Right? Ask Steve Jobs. He had all the money in the world, but yet he couldn't be cured of pancreatic cancer. Right? And we say, well, with our health, right? And I'm guilty of this. If I eat healthy, if I work out, I'm going to have good health. I read an article a couple months ago that 80% of all cancers are just bad luck. Control is an illusion. God is in control. Not us. God has a plan for this world, and he will always succeed. We cannot manipulate God. We cannot surprise God. And we cannot thwart God's plan. And if we're fighting against God, we may feel like we're making headway every now and then, but we're only fighting against hitting our head against a brick wall. Anyone who thinks they can obstruct or defeat God's plan is always going to injure themselves. They're going to stumble on that rock and eventually be crushed by that same stone. But those who are faithful, God will help. 
And just as the first century Christians were encouraged to find their identity in Christ and no longer in the temple, we can take the words of Peter too and encourage to see that Jesus is precious and chosen by God and will never be disappointed and that we cannot thwart God's plan. And the big idea is just as God gave us the living word, he also gave us the living stone, Jesus Christ. And although the living stone was rejected by man, it was chosen by the architect who is sovereign and man's choices cannot alter his plan. So how do we take these, these passages, this whole historical context, and apply this to our lives? First of all, Jesus is chosen and precious. Right? And that should give us joy. Right? God chose Jesus to stand in our stead, to be our sacrifice so we can have eternity with him. And everything that brings us happiness in this world isn't bad, but it pales in comparison to the joy we find in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. You'll never be disappointed in Jesus. But as we talked about, right, the truth is we're going to feel shame at times. We're going to feel disappointment. And not because of Jesus, because of our sin. And I encourage you, if you're struggling with this, read Psalms 118. Read it daily if you need to. Memorize it if you need to. But I want to read part of it to you today. It starts in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord Say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. And finally, God's plan can't be thwarted. I find so much comfort and courage in this. God is in control. His plan can't be thwarted. When the troubles of this world arise, and they will, right? Friends will betray us. Family will betray us. Loved ones will become sick. Our health will suffer. We'll turn to God and ask why? God is in control. And he will use you for his purpose. For good or bad, he will use you for his purpose. It's hard to hear. For good or for bad, he will use you for his purpose. Our actions determine if it's for our benefit or for our harm. You will be used by God to accomplish his purpose, for he is always in control. And there's a quote by C.S. Lewis in the book, The Problem of Pain, that I think articulates this best. C.S. Lewis writes, For you will certainly carry out God's purpose, however you act. 
You will certainly carry out God's purpose regardless of how you act. But it makes a difference whether you serve like Judas or serve like John. Powerful words from C.S. Lewis. It makes a difference whether you serve like Judas or serve like John. So if you join me, please, in prayer as the ship team comes up. Lord, we thank you so much that you came and died for us and you provide a way, that you are so precious and that you're the ultimate thing in our lives. And I, we are sorry, I am sorry, if I've ever felt shame or disappointment in you. Unless always use you as our brahmer that know that you never change. Let's find faith in that. They will never have disappointment or shame in you in this side of heaven or the next. And please give us the strength to serve like John. Thank you and praise you for who you are. In your name, amen.